Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording January 21st, 2022, we're talking about how the Afghan evacuation this past summer underlined issues with how the Canadian government crisis response mechanism works and how Canada goes about learning lessons from problems that we experienced in the past. We're having this conversation with our fellows, Dr. Howard Coombs and retired Colonel George Petrolikas. This episode of Defense Deconstructed is brought to you by Boeing. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. George, Howard, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Good to be here. So we're going to just tee off of a paper that you published uh, along with your colleague, uh, Brett Boudreau, another one of our fellows uh, a few months ago, titled Learning Lessons from Canada's Foreign and Domestic Engagements. It's time to get serious. Uh, and, and what you're talking about is effectively the way that the government of Canada deals with crises, um, largely international, but with a lot of domestic implications. Uh, and as we're having this uh, conversation, we, we've just seen in, in fairly recent uh, days, uh, another lessons learned report coming out of NATO about Afghanistan. But of course, we're also having this conversation um, as the government of Canada is going through yet another cycle of decision making related to a foreign crisis um, between Ukraine, uh, Russia, and NATO, and what Canada's gonna do about it. And the, the connection with Afghanistan, I think, is that as you highlight in the paper, that evacuation pointed to uh, a number of different shortcomings, but the way that we have on a systematic and systemic basis dealt with these types of events. So the quote from the paper, it showed the interdepartmental processes are ad hoc, they're not fit for purpose, and they're overly reliant on Herculean efforts of officials in the midst of a crisis. With that as a frame, thinking both about what happened last summer as well as what's happening now in, in Eastern Europe, um, George, I'll start with you. Why does it matter if, if we aren't actually doing this as effectively as we could and we're not taking it as seriously as we should? So I, I think Afghanistan was just the example which triggered the paper. But if you look back um, at our recent history or longer history, whether it be with the evacuation from Syria, whether it be with the evacuation from Libya, uh, our intervention in humanitarian operations, disaster relief in the Philippines and Sri Lanka in, um, uh, in Haiti. The only thing that is really predictable is from time to time, there will be a crisis that emerges and we don't know exactly what that crisis is going to look like. So that, that's a given. You will have crises in government that will require whole of government responses in order to address whatever that crisis presents you with. But it seems to be, and, and, and the Afghanistan evacuation was uh, emblematic of that, that we seem to be pulling the pieces together at the last minute, deciding which ministry should be a part, which players should be briefed at cabinet, how do we come to decisions, and then to compound that problem we don't have a structure in place that says, let's be briefing the prime minister on a daily basis, similar to perhaps the US presidential daily brief, where you're, as a crisis opens and emerges, you're not briefing information to catch up and then creating a lag time till you get decisions that are required for political leadership, but rather you're already one step ahead. If you don't do that, you will always be a step behind and, and completely in reactive mode. I, I would have to concur with George. Uh, I think he's captured the essence of the issue. And I'd also suggest in today's security environment and future security environments, as we understand them, 
if we're waiting to to kind of comprehend what's just transpired, we're already too late. Uh, we talk now about gray zone conflict. If you, the best analogy is an iceberg and gray zone conflict, the bulk of what's happening is underneath the water. You don't see it, it's there, it's unseen until it, like the Titanic, it rips you open. Unless we have a continual process and a standing organization that deals with national security and inter issues of international significance to Canada on a daily and ongoing basis, we aren't going to be able to discern perhaps what's happening below the surface until it's too late to react to it. And as you highlight the, uh, you're reflecting on the inability to, to meaningfully learn from lessons and apply uh, that learning going forward. And I guess uh, just to ask a basic question, uh, why should we be learning? And at least in some parts of government defense, ostensibly at least has a culture where you have a lessons learned exercises. Um, I guess, what would you make of what's happened with those processes as they're, they're supposed to exist, uh, that we still end up in a, in a situation like we had last summer, where it, it's not evident, at least from the outside, that uh, a whole lot had been wrapped in in terms of, of addressing some of those issues? Well, I'd, I'd argue that while we go through the exercises, the processes to inculcate and to move things from lessons, I like to use the term lessons identified, from lessons we've identified to lessons we've truly learned by making systemic changes that tweak uh, across all the government departments, things that need to be adjusted, um, that process doesn't exist. So a, a, great, a great example is the Afghanistan Task Force. When the Afghanistan Task Force shut down in 2010, 2011, they ran a lessons learned exercise or a lessons identified exercise. <laughs> they produced a grand total of four pages of lessons they learned regarding the whole of government experience in Afghanistan. And then that document was promptly archived somewhere. And uh, our colleague, Brett Boudreau, uh, accessed it through the Inform Access to Information Act. And we know it, so we know it exists. But if you, uh, you were to trace the changes or the things that they recommended to sustain through government, you wouldn't find it because nothing happened after the exercise. So I would say today that that is the, the the ground truth of the matter is that we might we might say we are we have conducted a lessons learned or lessons identified review they go nowhere nothing happens to it ostensibly the canada school of public service uh has a mandate to do this but they, they and they do they curate knowledge they curate the types of information that such a process um should generate and then pass back to senior public servants and probably through osmosis to politicians but even the Canada School of Public Service does not have a, an, any part of the organization that's devoted to this kind of thing. So I think any efforts we make in this regard are very ad hoc and they are without permanence. So even though there are dire things that happen, uh, we don't learn from them. We just note them and we move on to the next crisis promptly forgetting what just happened. Uh, George, uh, would you like Yeah, I, listen, I, I, I totally agree. And, and if, I, I, if I could draw a parallel with a very, very simple sporting analogy, a, a football team plays a game on, on Sunday. The very first thing they do on Monday morning is they review the tape of how they perform. And they see issues in their performance, in their sets and how they were laid out, what plays they called at what situations. And then that next week, they start making adjustments, and then they also look at the tape of the team they're about to play and say, what adjustments do we need to make 
to play better or to potentially win. So we go as far as looking at the tape of what we did, the lessons identified, but then we don't change the playbook. And we don't, and because you don't have a set team, if you will, and this is back to the structure and the processes and the players that are involved, you can't get a, the, the same people to adjust their playbook and then you can't even exercise them for the range or the spectrum of crisis that you might run into. So we end up consistently just repeating the same gaps and then lament why we didn't learn. And so as you, you mentioned, um, you get very different circumstances each time, um, depending on the crisis, depending on what's involved, the nature of the circumstance. But there's a lot of uh, commonality in terms of principles about uh, being in a position to adequately anticipate, uh, plan, respond, and then communicate uh, in terms of what's happening. Uh, and you have recommendations that, that tie, four recommendations that, that tie into all of these relating to the structure of the way that we approach national security, uh, actually developing a, a, a real meaningful capability to observe and, and uh, learn from lessons, establishing permanent interdepartmental task force, as, and then in particular, enhancing integrated de department communications to, to talk about all of that and make sure people understand it. So let, let's take the time to walk through those in sequence. And Georgia, just get you to start with the structural piece uh, and touch on what you would observe about uh, the need for change in our, the structure of our national security apparatus. So at its core, the National uh, Security Advisor's Office, which is kind of light, draws upon uh, information that come from different departments, uh, does a little bit of analysis with uh, uh, whatever it gets, but there isn't a structure that is designed to look at the world on a daily basis and say, what does this mean to Canada? What are the implications? Back to Howard's example of what's underneath the water on the iceberg. So we, 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 we are always behind that. The, the other part, and this has been, I, I would say, a continual example from some of our past crises, as different as they all were, by the time we realize that we're in the crisis and we start briefing the prime minister, we're already behind the eight ball because we haven't been briefing on a daily basis. So the organs of government or the organs of the PMO and direction that then flows to cabinet to departments is always a step behind. So um, that's a little bit about what we meant with, uh, with structure, but the structure is very much tied into to the processes and some of the other recommendations as well. I, I think, uh, you know, following on from what George has said, uh, one of the things that the ad hocery of the Canadian system begets is this vision of a, um, of a all national security issues are done by a small group of people who advise the prime minister, and they may be gathered from applicable departments. We tried to get away from that with the Afghanistan task force, which was formed back in 2008 after the Manley report in 2007. And any department that had a peripheral interest in what was going on in our mission in Afghanistan was involved with a permanent standing task force. Plus, it wasn't just leadership, it was staffers, it was people throughout the department. So there were vertical and horizontal lines that connected this, this task force and the processes that ran from it. Right now, not only as you can see from our latest engagement in the Ukraine, everything is being done on an ad hoc basis, but it seems as if it's still stove type. So the decision makers may get together um, 
discuss, be briefed, but then they go off to their separate stovepipes. The lateral integration or horizontal integration just isn't existent. The US system, on the other hand, is set up on a permanent basis by which not only at the highest level are the daily security briefings, but the National Security Council involves staffers in all the departments. The, the National Security Committee, the secretaries who participate in the National Security Committee, all the departmental folks, their undersecretaries are all engaged and there's undersecretary committees that support these processes and ensure that the, the cross pollination or liaison across departments takes place. We need something more structured, yeah. both if, in terms of organization and process. If I can add, that's brilliant, Howard, it, it, absolutely. And, and the other part on, uh, so the NSC is a, is a great example of, of structure. The other part, just to add to the ad hocery is every single time we run into one of these crises, it's as the crisis emerges, we appoint the lead department. So the lead department is going to be different every single time, depending on which one you're, what crisis you're dealing with. So how do you exercise it? Back, back to the football analogy. How do you, how do you plan for it even when you're not in crisis? It's just ad hoc at its best. Take a minute to expand upon uh, what you'd recommend in terms of uh, a better way to deal with lessons identification, lessons learning, and then actually presumably getting into the, the changing of the playbook so you don't just know what you're doing wrong, uh, but you're trying to adapt and, and learn from what's happened in the past. Well, I, I think, Dave, a, a simple way to look at it is that you need to create a, there has, there has to be a mandate. We have to legislate. The government actually has to provide policies and direction to themselves saying that after we deal with something significant, we need to have a lessons identified exercise. And then those lessons identified, I would argue that the Canada School of Public Service is probably the best place for them to go because of, as I mentioned earlier, they have in their mandate and a responsibility to curate knowledge. Uh, that kind of information should go there, but it shouldn't just be, reside in a repository, it needs to be refined, it needs to be examined, it has to be researched, deductions have to be drawn out from it, what does this really mean for government, and then it has to be re-promulgated outwards from the school, uh, Canada School of Public Service. Now, if they were to take this on, yes, I acknowledge it's not just doing more with the organization you have, they probably have to build a lessons learned capability in the school. It doesn't have to be huge. The Canadian Army gets away with literally less than a handful of folks to do all their lessons learned. Um, so build something, capture the mandate that the lessons be captured, capture the lessons, refine them, push them back out. And then uh, the best thing after that is, if the, is to have a review act. If it's a significant thing, such as the, our involvement in Afghanistan, uh, what happened in August of 2021, there were massive failures across government as to the Canadian, Canadian efforts in Afghanistan. No matter how much we've tried to shine this up since August, it we failed. So that is, we, we need to learn from this. Have we conducted a lessons learned exercise? Perhaps only in the most perfunctory sense. We've been, all the departments involved have been too busy um, trying to put their best foot forward on what happened in August than to try to really examine what went right and went, what went wrong and learn from that. And there's, I think if we were to look, we would find nothing written down, nothing, nowhere has any of these things affected policy. 
And a year from now, uh, they will only reside in the memories of those who participate. So we have to change that. And the only way to do it, capture, refine, promulgate, and review on a regular basis. And that's not that hard, but it has to be systemic. It has to be inculcated in a system. George? Yeah, and, and, and that only works if, if you've already made the, the structural changes uh, to the team that we talked about. Because otherwise, the lessons learned are diffuse. They're, 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 they're dispersed. So we, we get the lessons and, and we, we examine them just only in the context of foreign affairs or uh, Department of Defense. And they'll go, well, geez, those ones don't apply to me. It's, uh, well, we won't, we won't bother with those. Or, or these ones were, were just a one-off. You know, like, for example, we had really complicated immigration paperwork, really complicated paperwork for people to register for evacuation uh, and thinking that, you know, uh, they could just send a text in the middle of a, 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 of a crumbling society and that everything would work and they could get their internet access or whatever the case might be. So people will just ignore some of those lessons. But if you already had the team formed, then the process that Howard described to identify the lessons would actually have an impact because the team would want to improve its game. Because the team is so ad hoc, the lessons identified end up just becoming diffused, dispersed, and, and lost. Now let's take a quick break to hear about one of our sponsors. For 111 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with our allies around the world. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada, and that tradition lives on today. Our sponsor, Irving Shipbuilding, will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The CSC is based on the Type 26 Global Combat Ship Design, which is currently under construction in the United Kingdom and Australia. Canada's CSC will also be equipped with the Aegis Combat System, extending Canada's interoperability with six allied nations around the world. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. The other component to the team uh, is, is the proposing an interdepartmental task force. So why a task force structure? Is, is that drawing from our past experience about how that's been applied in our system of government? And why not, for instance, a more American style kind of national security council, uh, recognizing that there's different institutional ways to, I think, get at the same basic aims of having sort of standing groups, standing associations, so you're not relying on interpersonal dynamics uh, to overcome uh, a lack of, of institutionalized structural connectivity in a, in a time of crisis. Dave, I, th I think you're right. And, and I think in this case, it's just a function of semantics. Uh, we, you know, we used an interdepartmental task force within the Canadian context, uh, in, in part drawing on what we had done with the Afghan task force. But uh, you're, you're absolutely right, whether it becomes a National Security Council as per the United States or, or something a, a little more codified like um, uh, UK COBRA in, in terms of who participates and, and, and you know who participates uh, in particular crisis meetings or having an IRG, as we called it in Canada, that, that actually is the same one every single time that you start running into, into uh, the crisis. So I think the departmental task force is, is a bit of a, a, a 
uh, semantical issue from, from our side, but I think we're agreed with your question, which says, look, there has to be a structure uh, and it, that struck and that team, uh, which is part of that structure, then has to have processes. And then once you have those, you can exercise it. And then the lessons learned actually have relevance to that, whatever that grouping is. I agree wholeheartedly with uh, George's comments. I really can't uh, add more to his excellent exposition on it. Uh, as I, but I, I would reinforce what I already said is that this is, is not a top heavy organization. It has its departments that have many connections supporting a structure and a process. So it is just doesn't happen at one, one part of the governmental space. And I think that's a huge issue in Canada because, because of the nature of the, I'll say it again, the ad hoc of how we deal with these issues, um, the involvement of the departments in resolving the problems and not all answers reside at the ministerial level. It just doesn't exist. Those cross connections between departments where people with the people who actually do the work that operationalize solutions just isn't there. And that's why we need to have a standing structure, process, lessons learned capability, and so on. The final component of that uh, was on the communication piece. And I think there's both ensuring that uh, working that out within government and that, that that's done better so people are aware, understand what's going to, uh, what's actually occurring, having that level of coordination, but also uh, talking both uh, to Canadians about what their government is doing, uh, as well as being uh, more deliberate, systematic about how we communicate on these issues externally. Um, how does the communication piece fit in this regard? Well, Dave, I'm going to try to channel our colleague, Brett Boudreaux, who's not here today, because uh, he, he is the strategic communications guru. I, I always doff my hat to him when he starts to talk about communications. Now, Brett's, Brett has pointed out to both of us many times about the need for good, a good strategic communication plan and clear strategic communications. And that's in messaging. And that's both to internal and external audiences so people understand what we're doing. One of the, uh, the great, a great example from the August fiasco is the fact that DND has a combat camera capability. So it's a small team, uh, a photojournalist team who goes into dangerous environments and they record it. They take pictures, they send it back, it gets refined in Canada and it can be broadcast. That capability, which is literally a couple of folks, a couple or three folks, was not deployed as part of the evacuation efforts. So there was nobody telling the Canadian story. So even the good things that happened in August weren't captured for posterity and they weren't broadcast back to the people of Canada. So the government could not communicate effectively what it was doing, except through, uh, I like to call it, I wouldn't, these aren't Brett's terms, but what I call the talking head interviews that would happen on a regular basis, which to the country, to those of us that watched were, uh, were, were by a group of senior officials, ministerial level, and including the prime minister sometimes, who did not have the depth and understanding of the issues that were at play in a world of global information where anybody can pick up the internet, get on the internet and see what was actually happening at Kabul airport. The confusion and the chaos, which did not match up with the words of our ministers and our prime minister at the time. So how does Canada address those strategic messaging needs? We need to pay more attention. 
along with that idea that just that one capability that wasn't deployed as an example, uh, Brent also would point out to all of us, if he was here today, the fact that um, we get too wrapped up in security issues, operational security. Well, again, it's a global information age. So when we we're, so when we get, we tie ourselves down with OPSEC, many of those things are already being broadcast through cell phone footage or live, live through a cell phone in the area of operations. There were many things that um, at the time, different speaker, different representatives of the various departments said we, they couldn't talk about to the national audience and or international audience, whoever was listening because of operational security reasons. When in fact, these things had already, were already well known across the public sphere. So it's about understanding the message you're trying to communicate and having the means to do it. And if I may be so bold as to put in a, uh, unabashed plug for a paper I wrote for, for the Institute, Strategic Communications in the Age of COVID-19. I talk about the necessity of having a clear, coherent strategic narrative as an expression of your strategy so it can be diffused throughout your own population and to other audiences so they understand what you're doing. But also having that clear strategic message that encapsulate what you're doing allows people who are not getting information directly, but who are conducting actions on behalf of your government to take action in response to the information that's been provided in the strategic narrative, if they have to do so. Uh, so the lack of a narrative is not just about informing the public or informing an exterior audience, but it's also keeping the people that are actually doing things in response to the incident informed. Uh, and because we have no coherency, and sometimes I would say poor understanding of what strategic communications is within the government of Canada, and we're not alone in the world, uh, not everybody is, uh, is uh, good at this, I would say there are countries that are much better than we are, but there are other countries that are worse than we are. But if we paid more attention to this, it would be very helpful for the types of emergencies such as we're describing. George? Uh, yeah, uh, I... I... Totally agree, and, and and would add maybe one other thing from Brett, from Brett. But to summarize, Canadians were getting their information from other sources. Everything was already available. The imagery that was coming uh, across the television sets was widely available from U.S. cable news networks, uh, British cable news networks. While we hid under the guise of of OPSEC many times, uh, without using our our own resources. Secondly, we really had no identified person or voice that could speak to Canadians on a daily basis to pass information on what we were doing, whether it was figures, whether it was responding to issues we were, uh, we were running into, or even simple questions as to how are you going to bring all these people home and through where, which was manifestly clear uh, for other forces, but, uh, but not for ours, and also to answer questions tough questions as to why our processes weren't easier from an immigration standpoint or moving Canadians out, which are a bona fide uh, uh, question for uh, Canadians. And the third thing perhaps, which is also important because this is not a political issue, this is a, a national issue. I think Brett would, would also add if he were here that there has to be a means where uh, opposition parties, opposition leaders are also briefed, uh, even if it's on a classified level, on, on what we are doing, because 
there is nothing worse or nothing that undermines a national effort uh, more than uh, political gamesmanship um, when we're all trying to do something as Canadians, not tied uh, or split up between parties. Exacerbated having gone through an election time for all this. So just to, to tie into a, a couple of those things that you just said, I guess an observation that, that I would have would be that the ad hoc nature of the way, at least the current government has announced that it's structuring these responses by the use of the incident response group has set up a situation where effectively they tell us when it's meeting. And I presume the intent of that is to you know, provide some sort of reassurance. Uh, but in a sense, it, at least to me, provides a bit of the opposite um, effect in that you presume that the Treasury Board of Canada meets when it's supposed to meet regularly, whether or not there's a message sent out or not. Um, but we only get a few times of the year when we know that the government of Canada has holistically come together to actually deal with incidents to which it's responding. Uh, and you would think if you're attentive, paying attention to things that there's a, a lot more incidents to potentially have a meeting about than just the ones that they tell us. And we raise that in fact, as we're having this conversation just a couple of days ago, the government issued uh, basically a readout of what seems to have been an incident response group meeting about Ukraine. Um, and I, perhaps they missed it. And, and maybe there were more that they, did, they had and they didn't advertise. It just happened a couple of days ago at a point where you've got in excess of 100,000 troops, uh, Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And it's only at that point that the government is sending a signal that it's now come together to address the issue. I mean, um, the heavy armor has been there for, for multiple weeks, let alone anything else the Russians are doing. Um, I, I guess, I, I don't know if that's a fair characterization or not, but it's certainly the, the impression it conveys to me. And again, to, to come back and maybe to tie into some of the, the gray zone uh, comments you made previously, Howard, that also seems to set up a dynamic where it's only when you get a major news driving crisis that the government is going to at least indicate that it's responding to it. Uh, and by that point, uh, you know, you're, you're well into um, an event actually unfolding that you can see. Uh, and it doesn't really provide much of a solid mechanism to make sure that uh, government's having early awareness up until the point where you actually are literally in a crisis and then having to respond. Which, which as you, Dave, as you pointed out, it's far too late. Uh, the problem, I, I think in certain respects, particularly in terms of national security process, we've lost our way. The, the Canada that was the middle power in the post-Second World War period and the understanding of security processes that folks like Pearson and Reed and the rest of uh, the ministers had shaped by the of the demands of global conflict and Second World War just doesn't exist anymore. The last few decades have been very trying, I believe, on successive governments of Canada, but the security challenges, particularly in, in the breakup of the Warsaw Pact after the Cold War, have been very localized internationally and haven't had the same resonance across the international community that the what's going on in well what started what happened in Afghanistan in August did and particularly now the buildup in Eastern Europe Ukraine in particular it's re very reminiscent of a Cold War scenario uh, that we would have been prepared I, I think we would have been much better prepared for 30 or 40 years ago than we are now in terms of understanding what's going on the sensors the information government reactions to it this is, again, this, it, this goes back to the idea of lessons and inculcating them within government and processes, because it's obvious what we used to do, we can't do anymore. So here we are now in Ukraine, and I believe, as you said, the, that government readout indicates the ad hoc nature of our process, because if we're waiting till we've got 100,000 plus troops 
built up on the border with Ukraine before we start talking about this, we've, it's too late from yeah. a Canadian perspective. I would argue that even the, this, uh, I don't know if you, you caught recently, there was a news article about uh, Canadian special forces being dispatched to uh, Eastern Europe. Well, the having, they are, their value there would be as a strategic sensor for government. So, okay, so in the last week, we've decided to send, and we made, pu made public that we're sending uh, special operations forces who are who provide that kind of information back to Canada. Again, what many of the actions that have already occurred, we, we're, we're just starting to realize, and it's too late. And now we're, again, because of this lack of process and structure that we've been discussing, and George has painted a wonderful Rembrandt about, because it doesn't exist, um, we're reacting to incidents that have already occurred. And we have to take everybody else's lead because we haven't made the decisions necessary in a timely fashion. So particularly when we talk about gray zone conflict, where when you find out about something, it's too late. I believe that's where the government of Canada finds itself now. And unless they take some radical structural and process initiatives, um, in how they deal with security issues, they are not going to get ahead of the eight ball in the 21st century. And George, I'll, I'll let you have the final thought on that one. I, you know, I really not much to add except for some examples. The uh, the initial, and you have to consider this policy, but the, the initial uh, policy statement that we weren't gonna send troops came from the chief of defense staff as opposed from whatever this, integrated or national security council grouping should be and that could be well and fine but it just says that how diffuse it is uh and from that uh task force meeting that you mentioned dave i believe it said we haven't decided yet on whether we're going to send defensive weapons or not to the ukraine so we're already three steps behind other allies who at least clearly have articulated what they wish to do or not do and part of that is because we are so behind, because we are just putting it together, we're catching up in order to make our statements and we're always two, two steps behind. I think not just behind in the decision-making, but uh, I believe by the time that that was sent, the uh, British had planes in the air with uh, equipment on them. Um, whether irrespective of whether or not you think that was the right move or not, certainly Absolutely. significantly out of step, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of the, uh, the timing. Right. Just, just a final point to touch on. There was a lot of discussion this past summer about Afghanistan, about the fact that it happened during an election period and attributing a lot of the, the blame uh, for what happened and some of the responses and the slow responses, communication, all that stuff to the election and the caretaker provisions, which um, from my observation seem to be interpreted more expansively with each successive election, but you know, effectively limit what can or can't happen um, after an election has been called and, and during the RIP period. I guess I just ask for your thoughts, because unless we ask the world to uh, schedule all the crises around when we're having democracy, that's going to be a substantive problem to deal with going forward. So, so how do you work around that? And in particular, you've got an adversary that wants to do something. Um, boy, I don't think we sent them a very good message this summer and um, pointing to some of our shortcomings because of the election cycle. But uh, Howard, maybe your, your thoughts on that? I would, uh, I would say that uh, we have locked ourselves into a position right now where we can't react 
based on if something happens in an inconvenient time. I think I would argue that having a legislative structure and process would obviate the types of things that we saw in August. Uh, I believe we, uh, it's yet another reason supporting why we should go ahead and have something that's structured and apparent and clear, not only to the Canadian government and the folks of, who are in the population of Canada, but to any external actors who may wish to take advantage of uh, the fact that we have these uh, lows in our democratic lows and highs in our democratic process. So um, the summer was, I think, was a wake-up call. August, what the the events around the Canadian election and the lack of action uh, by the Canadian government and the very poor actions that were taken, I would argue, at times, uh, began a need to do something much more structured and to deal with this before we have another crisis at an inconvenient time. George? Yeah, uh, you know, min caretaker provisions notwithstanding, ministerial responsibility does not end at a time of an election. So I think all the, in put together the things that we have spoken about, you know, this past uh, 40 minutes or so would answer some of those things like briefing uh, opposition leaders. I, I mean, the only thing that would inhibit under caretaker provisions from responding to crisis is not making decisions that would tie a future government from a policy standpoint for, for years on end. So maybe Ukraine might be part of that test. Afghanistan certainly wasn't. Uh, so that's, I, I you know, I, I just, laugh and shudder at, at that as a, an excuse and, and see it more as a cop-out. If we do the things holistically that we have spoken about, uh, we wouldn't even be having a discussion about elections. Life goes on, the world turns, events happen, uh, irrespective of elections. And as you said, David, you know, we're not going to ask the world to just hold off on a crisis uh, until we get past the writ. So, Nothing, nothing that happened in Afghanistan this summer uh, would have restricted uh, exercise of ministerial responsibility or any of the things that we've spoken about this last 40 minutes. Howard, George, uh, thanks for coming on to, to talk about uh, these issues uh, as we're all sitting here in a frigid uh, Middle Eastern uh, Canada. Uh, I say that as a maritimer. Um, what are you both uh, reading these days? George, I'll start with you. Uh, right now, I'm halfway through uh, a book called uh, To Rule the Waves uh, from Bruce Jones at, uh, uh, Brooking, which is, at Brookings, which is a, a really interesting holistic view of not just naval strategy, uh, naval movements, but the economy of the sea and the economy of the sea, how it affects nations. And I find it fascinating because it's, it's objective, so it gives us a better understanding of why China has done the things that it has done, why America historically has done the things it has done in the sea. So it's, a, it's an absolutely great primer for the, uh, the age that we're living in. And my colleague Colin Robertson actually just uh, had him on his uh, Global Exchange podcast. If folks oh, wow. uh, want to check that out and get a, an, an audio synopsis. Howard? Uh, well, it's funny you asked. I'm so. I step efforts and I teach at the Royal Military College of Canada and I am teaching a course called Strategy and Strategist. It's a fourth year level undergraduate course to our military strategic studies program. And recently a colleague of mine indicated that he had put a chapter in a book on strategy. So I was able to get a copy of the book and I am actually reading it 
It's uh, on strategy. Oh, I'm trying to get it go on strategy of primer, and it's available online for free as a PDF file through the um, Combat Studies Institute. So if you just Google on strategy of primer, edited by Nathan K. Finney, F-I-N-N-E-Y, you can get a copy of the PDF. It was originally designed to support curriculum at the United States Army Command General Staff College, so to teach uh, majors, lieutenant commanders, commanders, lieutenant colonels, the nuts and bolts of strategy. Uh, and after reading through it, it's been, it, it has very easily digestible chapters. They're all within most people's attention spans. <laughs> so 10 to 20 pages. And it really talks about the nuts and bolts of strategy. You know, how does, how do national instruments of power get exercised? How do things like, how do structures work in implementing strategy? So uh, in the context of this podcast, I would hardly recommend this book to anybody who wants to get a good solid foundation of how strategy works and what it is. It's uh, not particularly complicated in terms of its content and it's an easy read. So I would, and I found for my students, it's, I think it's a perfect fit. And of course, candidly, I'm enjoying it too because I, it's easy to understand. Okay, well, uh, George Howard, thanks again for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaai.ca slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producers, Charlotte Duval-Antoine and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. <laughs>